As some of you know, we've been in a teaching series on the Old Testament book of Psalms, and we're concluding that series on Sunday for Resurrection Sunday, but it seemed appropriate this evening, uh, I thought, to reflect on the very last words of Jesus from the cross, which happened to be a quotation from the book of Psalms, from uh, Psalm 31, which we read in our call to worship at the beginning of the service. You know, as a reader of the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, uh, of his mission, of his work on earth 2,000 years ago, you know, at first it might, it might appear odd uh, just how much material, how much of the story is devoted to the death of Jesus. Uh, proportionally, it's, it's off in comparison with the rest of the things that we have recorded uh, about who Jesus is and, and what, he, what, he, what he did. Uh, it's just not proportionally how biographies typically work. But the earliest followers of Jesus were convinced that the death of Jesus, and more specifically the shameful crucifixion by the Roman authorities of Jesus, was at the center of this movement known as Christianity. So this evening, uh, let's go back to the center. Let's go back to the core of what Christianity is all about, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we'll look at the final moments and even the final words of Jesus and try to answer three questions. First, why was the cross necessary? Second, what did the cross accomplish? And third, how do you and I receive what the cross achieved? Why was the cross necessary? What did it accomplish? And how do you and I receive what it achieved? Uh, And I I realize that some of us here may be more image-oriented. I tend to appreciate images and visuals, so I have an alternate outline for you if that that resonates with you and it corresponds to the questions that I just gave you. So first, we're going to be looking at the darkness. Why was the cross necessary, the darkness? Second, the curtain. What did the cross accomplish? And then third, the breath. How do we receive what the cross achieved? The darkness, the curtain, and the breath. So first, why was the cross necessary? You know, three of the four Gospels uh, of the New Testament record that Jesus' death was accompanied by by darkness. We sang about that earlier in the service. Luke says, um, and Janet just read it for us, that it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. Make no mistake, this was supernatural darkness. It's interesting, some, of the, some, some scholars, some, uh, uh, some, some people attempt to uh, explain away the darkness that occurred on Skull Hill as Jesus was being crucified by attributing it to natural causes. Maybe this was a, a, a solar eclipse. But the problem with that is that a solar eclipse only lasts several minutes, and in the accounts that we have, the earliest recorded history of Jesus' death, this darkness lasted for three hours, which a solar eclipse just does not, uh, it only lasts for a brief uh, several minutes. This is supernatural darkness. And the darkness there at Golgotha is to point us to several important realities, and the first reality is actually given to us by Jesus 
uh, earlier in Luke. We read from this passage. In the very last hours of Jesus' life, we see him and some of his followers, some of his friends in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's here where a mob led by Judas Iscariot, one of, one of Jesus' followers, uh, comes and arrests Jesus. And after one of Jesus' disciples engages in a kind of skirmish and scuffle uh, with some of the members of the mob, Jesus says to these people that were brought out to lynch him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. See, there it is, right there. Jesus is saying, first, that the cross is necessary because there is an evil power. There is a dominion. There is a personal, malevolent force that is moving the events of Jesus' death to their tragic end. This evening, do you see Jesus fastened to pieces of wood, surrounded and engulfed by darkness? This was a sign that he was in the grip of a personal malevolent force pinned to the cross by evil expressed through the systems of the Roman judiciary and the Jewish religious elite. The darkness is Jesus under the dominion and the enslavement of evil. If you know the the beginning, if you know Luke's gospel as a whole, then you're familiar with the beginning. You'd be acquainted, well acquainted with a man by the name of Zechariah who served as a priest in the temple. And Zechariah became well known because he was the father of Jesus' predecessor named John the Baptizer. And in a poem of his recorded in Luke 1, Zechariah says that because of God's great compassion, he says the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death. See, what Luke is indicating by the darkness is that Jesus has come into our reality to rescue us from the darkness of our world, the darkness that we sense, the darkness that we feel, the darkness that we experience, the darkness that oppresses us, that holds us in its grip. It's the darkness of evil and sin. And I realize that there may be some of you here tonight who are turned off by that idea, that concept of sin. Like, isn't the whole, the whole sin construct passé? Isn't it sort of a carryover from antiquity, this, uh, this restriction of our freedom? Uh, shouldn't we be liberated from concepts like this? But the Bible doesn't talk about the common plight of our humanity as if Um, our big issue, if the big problems in the world were just a couple of taboos and occasional naughtiness, the way that the scriptures identify our plight is more like the chilling and horrific account that you may have seen in the news recently of the 13 children of the Turpin family right over here in Riverside who endured years of parental abuse shackled to their beds, malnourished, beaten, confined to dark rooms for long periods of time. That is the darkness that Zechariah says God has come to deliver us from. 
See, we live in darkness. We exist under the shadow of death. And the cross was necessary because we are hopelessly shackled and enslaved to the dominion of darkness. And some of you experience this like this. You experience it because of the loss of a loved one. You experience the shadow of death and the dominion of darkness in a separation from someone you love. You experience the shadow of death and the dominion of darkness in the chasm that's opened up between you and your children. You experience the shadow of death and the dominion of darkness every time that nagging anxiety about your mortality, about your life being finite, presses in on you. You experience the dominion of darkness in your addictions and your secrets and the things that you don't want anyone else to know about you. That's the dominion of darkness. Some of you know I'm a big connoisseur of podcasts, and my favorite genre the past couple of years has been the true, sort of the true crime uh, genre of podcasting. And recently I've been listening to a podcast on the Zodiac Killer. It's horrifying. It's terrifying. And as I was listening to this podcast, it sort of dawned on me for the first time. I've been listening to true crime for a while And for the very first time, it sort of dawned on me. You know, I think one of the reasons why this whole genre of true crime is so popular in podcasting and television is because it allows us to distance ourselves from evil. It allows us to distance ourselves from evil. See, what I experience is a kind of subconscious gratification in knowing that evil is personified out there in someone like the Zodiac, and not in me. There's sort of a thrill and a satisfaction in knowing that the danger and the evil and the darkness exists outside of me, outside of my home. The killer is the predator and I am the prey. And there's sort of a surface-level thrill to that, but then it becomes quite cozy. The problem is that it completely does not make sense of my experience, of my reality. See, we are living in the darkness, but the darkness is also in us. The darkness is in us. What do I mean? The Bible says that the darkness exists outside of us, but it's also inside of us. We're under the dominion of darkness, but we all have an inner spiritual darkness in which we are actively complicit. See, whenever Scripture talks about this, this idea of darkness, this idea of spiritual darkness, it's talking about the common human experience of turning away from God as the true source of light and life. And look, I'm not talking about some sort of esoteric search for knowledge or quest for meaning in the universe or being uh, nice and friendly. I'm talking about the tendency in all of us that active inclination to break things, to break stuff. Maybe it's when a relationship or a marriage ends. Maybe it's when your career stalls or bottoms out. Maybe it's that chasm that opens up between you and your teenager. When you realize, maybe, maybe it's when you realize that that supposedly recreational habit of drinking is now spilling over into all the other facets of your life. See, at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, we read that the earth was formless and void. 
It was formless and empty and there was darkness. Chaos and emptiness. But God spoke light and order came into being. And from God's light and from his order, all of life was able to flourish and thrive. And the problem of sin is that we aggressively turn away from God's light and move toward darkness, toward disorder, toward chaos. Genesis 1 is one of the best places to go to understand darkness. But the other, the other Old Testament place is in the nation of Egypt in the 12th century. See, in the historical account of the rescue operation of the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, we read about 10 plagues or 10 disasters that God visited upon the, the nation, the kingdom of Egypt in the form of judgment. And these weren't just sort of divine manifestations of sovereignty. They were demonstrations of what happens when people turn away from God as the source of light and life. What the ten plagues show in Egypt is what happens when creation is undone, when people turn their backs on God. When God removes himself, the world begins to unravel. Things stop working. Water doesn't work as water. Nature doesn't work as nature. It's swarmed with frogs and plagues and flies. Nature does not work as nature if God is absent. And one of the plagues happens to be absolute darkness. Egypt is plunged into darkness. God is telling Pharaoh in that moment, this is what happens when you turn away from me. And if you continue to read the Old Testament, especially the ancient prophets, you hear over and over and over again that a judgment day is coming when the light will fail. The light will turn off when creation will unravel, when the sun will be darkened. And on the cross, Jesus, the light of the world, the creator himself was engulfed in that darkness. The cross was necessary because we are both needy. We live under the dominion of darkness and we are unjust. We are willingly, actively enslaved to that darkness. And only the cross could dispel it. That's why the cross was necessary. What did the cross accomplish? Let's look at this curtain. We're told in verse 45 that the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. Now this curtain was in the temple in Jerusalem. And it, I don't know what picture you have in your mind, but do not envision a thin, small, little veil. This was a massive curtain, more like a wall, a huge barrier that separated the innermost recesses of the sanctuary called the Holy of Holies in the temple from the rest of the temple complex. The curtain was really there as a kind of protective shield. It blocked the holy presence of God, the glory of God, from people who were corrupt, people who were sinful, people who were unjust. And only the holiest man, the high priest, on the holiest day, Yom Kippur, with an atoning blood sacrifice could enter behind the curtain. And even then, people were extremely anxious about whether or not he would even survive the encounter. But the moment Jesus is dying, the massive curtain is ripped in two. We know from other accounts uh, in the New Testament that it was ripped from top to bottom as an indication of who did it. 
But the important question for us tonight is what did it accomplish? What did the cross accomplish? What did Jesus' death and the ripped curtain do? Let me identify three things. First, it gave us access. It gave you and I access. Jesus' death gives us access to God. Think about it. The curtain in the temple was a barrier. It was a wall. It was a barricade that prohibited access except by the holiest man from the holiest nation on the holiest day of the year. That was it. And so think about the average ordinary Israelite. No access ever. Have you ever had access to someone who's very important? Like, I mean a direct line of communication. I've experienced it myself, uh, but I've also seen its effect in other people. Uh, Just several months ago, I had the amazing experience of watching as my daughter Eunice, uh, as she experienced Disneyland clicking with her for the first time. And as many of you know, she's not that old, and she's too small for most of the rides, But there was one thing that she was able to do that made her heart leap. One place that she was able to go where all of the joy of the Disneyland experience finally made sense. And it was access to the Disney princesses. She had access for the first time to to people she thought were amazingly wonderful that exceeded all of her heart's expectations and joys. The New Testament letter called the Hebrews uh, talks a lot about access. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. See what that says? You have access. Access to the most benevolent, most powerful, most important person in all the cosmos. The cross gives you access. The cross is the foundation for all prayer, for all communion with God. It's here at the cross that you are given access. The second thing the cross gives us is acquittal. St. Paul was a prominent early follower of Jesus, the Messiah. But before knowing Jesus, before recognizing in Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was a morally self-righteous Pharisee who was not just intolerant but who actively abused and suppressed people who did not believe or behave like him. And it's a long story, but Jesus changed his life. And in Paul's magnum opus, the letter to the Romans, Paul says this in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul says that the access that we have with God is based on a declaration. It's founded on a verdict in which God says to you, you are righteous. Not in and of yourself, but because of the rightness, because of the goodness, because of the worth of the life of Jesus Christ. 
You see, in the cross, a righteousness was being revealed for the first time in human history. The Roman centurion at the foot of the cross was the very first one who saw it. This man really was righteous. Friends, what the cross achieves for you and for me is not only the reality that your sins have been paid in full, but your account has been credited with the infinite wealth of Jesus' righteousness. You have been washed, but you have also been clothed. Your record has been expunged, but you've also received the acclaim of the one who did everything for you. The cross is radical acquittal. Third, adoption. The cross achieves access, acquittal, and adoption. You see Jesus' final words on the cross, Father. Do you see that? Father, he says. His last words are words of incredible intimacy. The people you turn to in the moment of unspeakable crisis are the most important The Father was the most important to Jesus. Some of you here long for that, to have someone, anyone that you can turn to when life becomes impossible, when your world is spinning out of control, and Jesus had it with the Father. And what the cross accomplishes, friends, is a legal guarantee sealed in the blood of Jesus that you mean as much to God the Father as his son, Jesus Christ. John says it like this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you hear that? You have the right, because of the cross, to be a child of God. Our culture is obsessed with rights. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, there is no greater right, there's no greater freedom, there's no greater liberty than the right to be God's child. The cross achieved it. So how do you receive it? How do you receive all that the cross accomplished? We've just touched on a small, a small part of what the cross achieved for us. How do you receive everything that Jesus accomplished for you? You receive it through the breath. Luke, and only Luke, gives us the final words of Jesus Jesus from the cross. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. That's a quotation from the Psalms, from Psalm 31, as I said earlier. And Luke says that these were Jesus' last words, in fact, his last breath. And it got me curious, Jesus' last words. I remember that it's only in Luke's gospel that we have a historical record of the first words of Jesus. Not his very first words, but uh, words from when he was a young boy. And the episode that Luke refers to is one in which Jesus' family takes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And while there, some of you may recall, Jesus gets separated from his family from the group, and ends up in the temple, sitting and discussing theology with the temple teachers. And after three days of searching for Jesus, his parents find him, and this is how he responds. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see that? Jesus' first words 
My life is oriented toward my Father and his purpose. Jesus' last words, I'm placing my life in the Father's hands. From first to last, all of Jesus was connected to the Father. He was turning to his Father as the only source of life and light and saying, here is all that I am, a gift to you. You know that old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, we sang it tonight, were the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. During Jesus' whole life, but especially on the cross, you see Jesus over and over and over again offering his Father the greatest offering of all, the greatest gift of all time, his soul, the weight of his life, himself, his all. And this, my friends, is plumbing the deepest mysteries of reality. Because in that radical act of self-giving on a Roman gibbet, he is mimicking what the, what the Father has done in sending his Son. God gave what was most precious. He gave what was most precious to accomplish the humanly impossible. And here on the cross we see Jesus has been about that for all eternity, pouring his life out to the Father, entrusting his all into the Father's hands. So do you want to know how to receive it? First, you have to believe that you could never achieve this. You have to believe that the weight of your darkness, the weight of your cruelties, of your failures, of your secrets, is too much for you to bear. And in that moment, you have to hear Jesus saying, let me bear it. Let me carry it. I am big enough. You have to see that everything that Jesus is going through in this moment, he is doing for you, friend. And in that same breath, you have to entrust into Jesus' hands the weight of your life. You have to put all of the burden on him. You have to trust him. And when you do that, do you know what you get? You get not only access to the most important person in all the world, but you get the verdict of judgment day in the here and the now. You hear from God this evening, my friend, what that Roman centurion said to Jesus 2,000 years ago. God says today, this evening, you are really righteous. You are my son. You are my daughter. And you are really righteous. Because in that unfathomable mystery on Skull Hill, Jesus was saying, Father, look on my sacrifice. Look at my obedience. And only see my brothers and sisters. In that final breath, in that last gasp, Jesus is bearing you. He's carrying you. All the way through death, he's securing everything about you and bringing it to the Father. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. In that breath, he is securing your life. He is redeeming your soul. And he is uniting your destiny to his for all of history, for all of time, for all of eternity. Thanks be to God.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a gift so wonderful that sometimes we tremble to think at the solemnity and the sorrow and the magnitude of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. We pray this evening that you would dissolve, even now dissolve our heart into thankfulness and melt our eyes to tears at the love and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus crucified for us, given for us so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be brought into your family and adopted as your sons and daughters and called righteous. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.